Christ is risen. Christ is risen. I guess you can feel it. Or maybe not. Can you feel it? Some of us do, and some of us may not. Which of us has never felt a little bit at a distance from this resurrection? Which of this, us has never felt perhaps that we were watching it through a plate glass window? We were overhearing it said to somebody else. As if this impossible good news is, well, impossible, at least for us, at least for me or for you. And if this is someone else's news, not yours, this morning or at any time in your life, well then, Peter's your man. Christ is risen. Peter knows it, but Christ isn't risen for Peter, not yet. Peter has heard the word. He's gotten the news from Mary of her meeting with Jesus there at the empty tomb. He has even seen Jesus there in the upper room, presumably, although we don't hear about Peter in that encounter. He's seen Jesus talking with someone else, with Thomas, showing his wounds to Thomas. And Peter, he was there in the garden that morning. He knows the tomb is empty. He knows the stone has been rolled away. But not yet for Peter. Peter is still in a tomb, his own tomb. A stone still lies over Peter's heart. And it cannot be moved except from the outside. Like Mary in the garden, like Thomas in the upper room, Peter needs his own face-to-face -face with Jesus for the resurrection to become his resurrection, for the news to become his news, for the stone to be rolled away from his heart. And that is a fearsome prospect, perhaps in Peter's imagination, unimaginable. To face the Lord, whom he so foolishly once said, I'll follow you anywhere, even to prison and to death. And then who so much, not much later, he emphatically denied. To hear that voice which when they first met said to him, Simon, son of John, I give you a new name. You are no longer Simon, son of John, you are Peter, the rock. To remember the incredible miracles right there by the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus calming the storm, the huge catch of fish, the stunning meal on the beach where Jesus fed thousands from a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. And to think now in his heart of hearts, to think whatever the future holds, that's not for me. I can't be Jesus' follower anymore. How could he ever trust me again? Look how he ignored me. Did he appear to me at the tomb? No, he appeared to Mary. Did he talk to me in the upper room? No, he talked to Thomas. Jesus is done with me. So one evening, Peter, heavy-hearted and stone-faced, says those famous words, I'm going fishing. 
Now we know what those words mean. Those words mean exit plan. How many times has someone said, I'm going fishing? And that means I'm looking for a way out of here. <laughs> I'm going out. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to who I used to be, what I used to know about myself before this whole Jesus business ever started. And his friends, the other disciples, well, they know what going fishing means, too. It's not about the fish. It's about something else. And so they say, we'll go with you. Because they know Peter might not be okay by himself, even though he wants to be by himself. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out on a boat in a big sea at night, a small boat. I have. It's a very spooky thing in an open boat at night on the water, especially if there are no lights on shore. And in first century Palestine, I doubt there were any lights on shore. When you're out there in the blackness, in the dark, you cannot tell where the water ends and the land begins. It's very disorienting. You can't tell where the sky is. You are just surrounded by darkness in this unstable boat that is going up and down with immensity underneath you and all around you. And it's very easy to lose your way and get in trouble. It's a dangerous thing. No wonder Peter wanted to go fishing, because he was feeling pretty dangerous himself, and maybe he wanted that darkness all around him. Maybe he felt just that unstable. He didn't know who he was anymore. Maybe he wanted the hope of an exit. And so there's Peter and the disciples out in a boat on the water, very strange and also very familiar because they've done this before, and they've fished all night before and not caught anything. That's familiar. But then things begin to get really weird because just as the light is coming up, they see a light on the beach. They see a fire kindled. And as it gets a little lighter, they can see a stranger standing there by the fire. And the stranger calls out to them, have you caught anything yet? That's a really irritating question, by the way. And they say, no. He says, well, try one more time. Put your net down on the other side of the boat. And they do. And there's so many fish, it begins to break the net. They cannot handle this many fish with their little boat. Sound familiar? We've heard this story before. So have the disciples. They've lived it. And so, of course, Peter's friend, Jesus' friend, said, it's the Lord. And from here on, Peter finds himself walking through his own past, but differently. What does Peter do? The most counterintuitive thing. He throws his clothes on and jumps into the water. Now, is that what you would do? You put your clothes on before you get wet. Maybe Peter is ambivalent about meeting Jesus. Maybe he doesn't want to be naked when he meets him. It doesn't matter, but, you know, maybe he feels that way. So he jumps in the water with his clothes on, makes it to shore. The boat makes it to shore. And then from then on, it's as if Peter is still in his past, but it's present. It's as if his whole life story is being superimposed over the present reality, as if he's in a double exposure, which he is. There's a charcoal fire on the beach. 
The last time Peter was standing next to a charcoal fire at dawn was in the courtyard of the high priest. He was warming himself by the fire as Jesus was inside being interrogated and then led out to be tortured. And there, shivering with cold, but even more shivering with fear, Peter denied his Lord three times. We remember the story, that charcoal fire at dawn. And the last time Peter ate a big meal of fish and bread, well, was in the very same place, right there by the Sea of Tiberias on the beach, with Jesus handing out this miraculously never-ending supply of fish and bread. And the last time Jesus called Peter Simon, son of John, was when they first met. And Peter decided to throw his lot in with Jesus, and Jesus gave him a new name, Peter. Well, Peter hasn't lived up to that name very well, has he? And so now Peter is flooded with memories. The past is present. Everything's the same, but everything's different. Peter is different. He's lived through the school of despair. He has learned that his own history is a history of failure. It's the necessary learning before Peter can really become an apostle, to name and know his own history of failure. He can't ignore these realities about himself anymore. He's been disillusioned. But Jesus is also different because when he hands them the bread and the fish, they see holes in his hands. Everything's the same, but everything's different. And so Peter begins to see himself in Jesus' eyes. And the stone over his heart begins to move. He sees who he has been, who he is, mirrored back to him with the eyes of love. Ever so gently calling him by his old name, Simon, son of John. Peter knows that Jesus knows everything about him, he says it, including his fearful, angry attempt to pretend he'd never met Jesus. He is exposed and loved and called to an unimaginable future. It's as if Peter can't get out of his own private tomb without passing through a kind of security checkpoint, a threshold where the x-ray exposes what he might be hiding, or as if the encounter with Jesus goes so deeply into him that there's nothing to hide. Jesus' gaze and his words seek out and expose the failure, the bitterness, the resentment, the self-hatred, the hidden resistance points. C.S. Lewis once said that the horror of the Christian universe is that there's no door marked exit. And there's no place where you can put up a sign and say, no admission. How does the resurrection roll away the stones from our hearts? How does it become our news? Not by erasing our pasts, but by bringing them into the light and exposing them. A friend of mine is battling cancer, and it's in his bones. And he is on a new treatment called radium-223. Some of you may know this treatment. You get infused 
with a radioactive substance, that's radium-223, put into your bloodstream where it will travel through your body to the bone marrow where bone cancer likes to grow and target the cancer at that place. It also makes the patient radioactive. Now the doctors did not realize just how radioactive when they learned that, my, that this friend was going on an international trip. They said, it'll be fine. <clears throat> and it was fine until he got off in a rather remote country. And as he was going through the airport, all the alarms went off. All hell broke loose. And everybody froze. And six heavily armed security guards showed up and said, freeze. Everybody else stand back. And as they approached him, slowly, with a decimeter, it got louder and louder. They thought he was bringing radioactive material into the country, and you know what? They were right. He was bringing radioactive material into the country, his body. It took a little bit for them to realize and be persuaded that he was okay. And the radium in his body was doing more than the airport sensors or any security checkpoint could do because the radium was doing an inside job of seeking out the dangerous stuff and defusing it, defanging it, neutralizing it. Meeting Jesus, having the resurrection become reality to us, it's like being injected with radium. It's a dangerous enterprise. As the book of Hebrews puts it, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the hot thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. That's what Peter's meeting with Jesus is like, not going through an airport detection, no. Being treated with a radioactive substance, that seeks out every point of resistance and fear and dismay and neutralizes it so that Peter can move into life. Peter wanted an exit plan. He wanted a place of no entrance, but what he got instead was life. Life. He is standing on the threshold and Jesus pulls him over, pulls him through the portal into a life that he thought was impossible for him. Do you love me? feed my sheep. And guess what? You know you wanted to be that guy who would go to the death for me. Well, you're going to be that guy. Strangers will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go, just like they tied me up and took me where I didn't want to go. But be of good heart, because I am risen, and you will rise too. You will rise. You will rise. You will rise. Dear people of God, I speak these words today from a radioactive pulpit. Now, you may not believe me, but there is the symbol, the international symbol for radioactivity carved into the stone of this pulpit. <clears throat> it happens to also be the symbol for the Trinity, three triangles in a variety of arrangements. The word of God is radioactive. And not only that, but when you came in through those front doors, you crossed a threshold marked by the symbols of radioactivity, also the symbols of the Trinity. We are on the threshold. We are on, in the dangerous presence of God. 
who seeks us out and knows us, who brings our darkness to the light and heals us, who calls us to be more than we ever imagine we can be, so that the resurrection can be for us as for Peter, not someone else's news, but the truth of our life. We will rise. Roll away the stone. <laughs>